Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, we are going to be covering uh, verses 20 through 30 of Matthew 11. Um, and on the Pew Bible, if, if you're using that one, it will be page 816. And so again, we're going to say this uh, because we mean it every week. If you don't have a Bible, um, we would love for you to take that one home and use it. Um, we will replace the one you take. Don't worry, we, we're, not, we're not out of Bibles. And so if you'll take it and use it, we would love it. It's our gift to you. Um, we just would ask that you read it um, or uh, give it to someone who will. We, we think that God's word should be freely distributed, so we're, we're happy to provide. And in fact, our church family raised money so that we could have enough to give away. So um, we'll be reading that in a second, and it's page 816. And if, if you're new to reading the Bible, the, the big numbers on the pages are the chapters, and then the little small numbers um, are the verses. And so we'll be reading chapter 11, then you can find there verse 20, and we'll start reading there in just a minute. Um, but we're continuing this, this study through the, the Gospel of Matthew, um, and I must say, I was, I was on the verge last night of, of cutting this um, short because I feel like there's so much to say, um, but, but we're going to get through verses 20 through 30. If I talk fast, it's, it's because I'm trying to say all I want to say, um, and I, I know that I need to slow down, but there's so much, um, and so I, I trust that it'll be beneficial. I will say, though, that we have these books our church was given these books called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Suffers. And this is one pastor's um, exposition of the one verse we're going to look at the end of our passage. Um, take one of these. Also, we were given them freely. They were donated to our church, so we are freely giving them away. If, if what I say doesn't do justice to what Jesus means when he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, take this and read it um, and spend time there because it's, a, it's an encouraging book and it continually points you back to the scriptures. Let me, let me just, let me read um, our passage and then I'll pray for us and then we'll work through the verses together. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 20, Matthew writes this. Then he, that is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, my prayer, we've just read that for someone to get a true, real knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has come to do, it is dependent on your gracious will, it is dependent on his sovereign choice. And so we plead with you now, would you give us eyes to see the beauty and wonder of our Savior? Would would the exalted and resurrected and uh, authoritative, sovereign Christ be the one on whom we fix our eyes and our affections this morning. So for the, those who have put their faith in Christ, would, would, would they see him as even more magnificent and beautiful and, and follow him wholeheartedly from this point on? And for those who have never put their faith in Christ, I pray that they would, that they would see him, that they would see him and they would they repent and respond to this one who gave his life that sinners might be forgiven. And so we ask you to do these things because only you can. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, there's three points that we're going to work through. There's a warning, there's an explanation, and then there's an invitation. And so a warning will be verses 20 through 24. There's an explanation, verses 25 through 27. And then there's an invitation there at the end, verses 28 through 30. So so let's, let's start there. Verses 20 through 24, a warning a warning. As we, as we look at this first section, we're going to see that, that the ministry of Jesus, that his, his work and his teaching, that it, it is such that it demands a response. It's not just there to be beheld, but it's there to produce something, to create a response. And the respo- that response is that of repentance. And so we're going to see that Jesus demands a response. It's kind of like this past week, as I, as I sat inside the elementary school on Tuesday morning, I, I was put... And there was put in front of me a, a ballot, a sheet of paper, and the ballot was empty. And I looked at that empty ballot and I thought, this demands me a response. I must do something. I must, I must put in, fill in these circles of the names of people that I want to elect. For, for me not to respond, for me not to bubble in the ovals, trying to stay in the line with, with the candidates that, that I wanted to win, would be to miss the point of the ballot. If I just walked out without doing anything, or if I, if I said, oh, this is good scrap paper, my kids can use this at home, or hey, I can take this to church and use, use this for sermon notes, but that would miss the point of the ballot. The ballot demands a response from me. And in this section, we see a similar phenomenon. Jesus says, I have come... And for you to see what I've done, to hear what I've said, for you to not respond is to miss the point entirely. And so that's, that's the point of here. So as we come to verses 20 through 24, it's helpful to remember what's just happened up in verses 16 through 19. So Jesus, after he'd addressed the doubts of John the Baptist, John sent his disciples asking questions, are you the one? So he responds to that. He then, Jesus turns to the current generation. And Jesus condemned them because they failed to recognize both John and Jesus. They missed the the purpose of of their respective ministries. They were blind to what was happening both with John and with Jesus. And so here he continues this this theme of, of condemnation specifically to those who failed to respond correctly to the ministry of Jesus. But instead of this generation, which was the the subject of his condemnation up in the earlier verses, here he addresses the towns and cities that Jesus had been most active. So look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works has been done because they did not repent. 
So the first thing to notice is, is he mentions these towns, but he denounces them because they had seen most of his mighty works and they did not repent. And so he says, Chorazin and Bethsaida, these are two towns that he mentions first. There's nothing really uh, significant about these towns other than they were part of this region and they had witnessed most of Jesus's mighty works. You may be familiar with Bethsaida simply because that's where Philip and Andrew and Peter would, would originally come from. But the reason Jesus mentions and condemns these towns has not to do with, with their significance or their reputation, but because specifically they failed to respond to his ministry. And so Jesus doesn't perform these miracles looking for amazement and admiration. It doesn't matter if you admire, like, oh, that's, that's pretty amazing. No, the point is for repentance. And he says, you didn't repent. And you saw more than any other town the mighty works that they had done. And so these mighty works are not an end unto themselves, but a sign for everyone who saw them that God was actually at work, that the Messiah had been sent. He had come. The kingdom was at hand. And those who saw that and recognized that would repent and enter the kingdom through faith in the king who was on the scene proclaiming the kingdom. That was the point. The point was faith and repentance in the king who was in their midst. And thus, Jesus condemns these two cities because they didn't respond. They didn't repent. But not only does he condemn them and say, woe to you, but he also compares them to two other cities, Tyre and Sidon. And unlike Chorazin and Bethsaida, Tyre and Sidon were not cities or towns in Galilee where Jesus had performed many of his signs. Rather, these are two Old Testament cities that would have been well known in the history of the Old Testament. And Tyre and Sidon, their reputation in the Old Testament was that of of recipients of God's divine judgment. So so you can write down Isaiah chapter 23. It's an entire chapter in the prophet Isaiah dedicated to judgment against these pagan cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Tarshish is mentioned there also. But but Tyre and Sidon were were those that, that the Lord declared judgment against. Amos chapter 1, that verses 9 and 10 specifically, there's a, a judgment against Tyre. And so when Jesus says Tyre and Sidon, he mentions them, the, the, the listeners would have known their reputation. These were evil cities that fell under God's judgment. And so it's these two pagan cities that Jesus compares Chorazin and Bethsaida, these current cities that he's been into. And he says, if the mighty works that you have seen, Chorazin and Bethsaida, were done in these ancient cities, they would have repented. You see, the issue is repentance, is the response. Tyre and Sidon were not cities known for their repentance. There's no record of them ever repenting. And in that sense, they're just like Chorazin and Bethsaida. All four of those cities didn't repent, but the differences between them focuses on what they had seen or heard, the revelation that had been given to them. Tyre and Sidon had not witnessed the Son of God. They had not witnessed the Messiah in their midst performing miracle after miracle after miracle and proclaiming testimony after testimony after testimony. They had not seen the mighty works that these two cities he's condemning had seen. And the point Jesus makes, this isn't hypothetical. This is, this is the omniscient mind of the second person of the Trinity. If these Old Testament cities had seen what these current cities had seen, if they had witnessed Jesus at work doing the things they had done, they would have gotten it. They would have repented and they would have responded the way that God intended the ministry of Jesus to be responded to. And so the point Jesus is making is that Chorazin and Bethsaida and all these other towns that Jesus performed his mighty works in were unlike any other town or city in the history of the world. 
They had literally seen the mighty works of the Son of God with their own eyes. And so seen, they had ignored it. They'd rejected him. They'd rejected his works. And the cost of that type of rejection, the cost against refusing that level of revelation will be unbearable on the day of judgment, Jesus says. Verse 22, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for these two ancient Old Testament cities than for you. And so the nature of the rejection and refusal had, that had been displayed in the towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida was severe. And so he condemns them. They'd missed the point. They didn't respond. And then verses 23 through 24, he mentions another city, a city we're probably more familiar with that he, he'd been ministering, Capernaum. That was his home base. And he says, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven just because of your position, just because of, of your relationship to me? Will you, will you escape judgment? You will be brought down to Hades. You will be judged just like Tyre and Sidon. For, again, same line of thinking, if the mighty works done in you had been done, not, not in Tyre or Sidon, but in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Again, Capernaum, this is where Jesus' ministry was most focused And they, just like the others, had rejected Jesus and his ministry. They'd failed to recognize and respond accordingly. And they too, for their failure to respond, were going to face the same eternal judgment as Chorazin and Bethsaida. But again, instead of comparing to Tyre and Sidon, he compares them to Sodom, which also had a reputation that would have been well known. And it's fascinating. Jesus says Sodom would still be here. It wouldn't have been destroyed if it would have seen the works that you have seen. Because they would have responded, even the evil men of Sodom, and they were evil men. Jesus says, even they, if they have seen what you've seen, then they would have repented. And so these are harsh warnings from the mouth of of this sovereign king. Warnings that that are not hard to understand. I mean, it's pretty clear. You behold what, what Jesus has done and said, and you respond. And a failure to respond leads to eternal peril. And so it's not hard to understand. It's not hard to apply. And so the only point of application for this first section is simply to ask the question, have you repented and put your faith in the Son of God? I mean, that's the question. It's impossible for us to pass over these verses without asking this question. It's been made very clear, Jesus, that there's no confusion. A refusal to respond to the ministry of Jesus will only lead to eternal punishment. That is a reality that's yet to come. For the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they had their chance. No one from those cities is still living today. They had their chance, and according to Jesus, they failed to respond. Therefore, their destination is final. And and they only await the, the final judgment. But for those of you sitting here today, your destination is not final. Your destination is yet to be determined. You have before you, don't, don't, don't miss the point. Though you haven't literally seen Jesus, you have access eye to eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus. 
So that you have seen the ministry of Jesus. You have heard the teachings of Jesus. You have come face to face with who he is and what he came to do. You have that in the pages of scripture. You have that in the account of Matthew. You have before you the mighty works done by Jesus in his earthly life. And so this passage demands of you a response. Repentance is the call for you today. If you've not repented of your sin and put your faith in the Son of God, today is the day for you to respond. I mean, it's today. Today stands before you the option. Will you respond to the ministry and the call of the Messiah? I am calling you. God himself is calling you, demanding that you respond. That you respond with faith and repentance. Turn from your sin and put your faith in the King, in the Messiah. Trust in Jesus. A failure to do so is to ensure eternal punishment and condemnation. You will not escape the wrath to come apart from faith in Jesus. And so that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for many of you, for any of you here today that don't know Christ. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I'm praying that for you. Many of you, the people sitting beside you are praying that for you. In fact, after the service, if you're not a Christian, uh, ask the person beside you, hey, I'm not a Christian. Were you praying for me to to know Jesus. They'd love to talk with you about what they're praying for you. If you have Christian parents or siblings or children and you're not a Christian, people are praying that you would see Jesus and love him and put your faith in him. If you have Christian neighbors or grandparents, the prayer of every Christian that knows you is that you would turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ. And so I'm just, I'm calling you, do it. Jesus, his life and ministry demands a response. Well, it leads to our second point, an explanation there in verses 25 through 27. So after Jesus has, has gone through addressing the concerns of John and addressing the failure of generation, then condemning the towns that had seen his mighty works and not, respond, not responded, he then turns to explain the, the dynamic that's at work both in the reception and the rejection of him in his ministry. And I think that's what he's, what he's doing here. I think his point is to explain what's happening because some have responded and some haven't. And so even John the Baptist comes with a question. He's gentle. He says, here, tell John this is what's happening. But others have rejected him. He says, no, no, no. Your judgment will be severe for you. And so he's trying to explain what's happening because there are the two responses and he wants to give a, 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 a behind the scenes look of what's going on. So notice specifically that at verse 25 begins at that time. Now, now, Matthew, that is a phrase he uses often, but I think here it's specifically crucial because he's just condemned these towns who've missed the point. And he says, at that time, Jesus began to pray. And so he declares in this short prayer, looking there at verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding And revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, first, we just have to, when we come to a passage like this, we have to step back and recognize the great privilege that's ours. Yes, all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful, right? So we believe that's about the Bible is God's word revealed and, and made manifest to us. And that it shares the characteristics of God so that it doesn't err, it doesn't lead astray. It is true, and that's a blessing, but, but here within the pages of Scripture, we have a recorded divine conversation between God the Father and God the Son. I, I mean, th- this, is, this is sacred ground. I, I feel like we should take off our, our shoes because here is Jesus praying to the Father. 
And so notice what he says to the father. First, he thanks him. I thank you, God and father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from wise and understanding and revealed them, that is, these things, to little children. And so those words are key, hidden and revealed. Well, what are the things that have been hidden and revealed? He said, these things. What's the these things? Because Jesus is thanking his father for revealing these things and for hiding these things, or hiding and revealing. Whatever I did, on what side? You get the point. So, so what's he saying about these things? Right, the context makes pretty clear that these things is the truth about who Jesus is and what his ministry means. Right, right? He, he's gone through what people have failed to recognize about him and the failure to respond. And so Jesus, throughout this gospel, right, he's taught, this is who I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm the king, and I've come. And here's what's true about me and my kingdom. And, and here's who I am. So he's communicated who he is. And in this context, that these things is the true identity of Jesus. Which means that Jesus is both thanking the Father for hiding the reality of who he is, keeping it from the wise and understanding, and he's thanking the Father for revealing the reality of who he is to the little children. He said he's thanking the Father for doing both of these things. And he continues, verse 26, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And so we have, we have God the Son publicly thanking God the Father, both for people not getting it and for people getting it. And he locates both of those, those responses, getting it and not getting it, in the gracious will of the Father. Do you see that? I mean, I'm just trying to make sense of what he says. In other words, it is the gracious will of God the Father that the little children have responded to the revelation of Jesus in his ministry. And it is the gracious will of the Father that the wise and understanding have missed the revelation of Jesus in his ministry. Do you see that there? I mean, I'm not asking you to understand why Jesus would thank his Father for this, but simply to recognize not only that he is thanking his Father for this, but also that the grounds of this hiding and revealing is the gracious will of God the Father. Verse 26, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And as you think about that, that's, that's actually quite an encouraging truth to recognize, especially considering the context here of Jesus and his ministry. In light of the fact that Jesus has been rejected... People are saying, no, no, no. His own hometown says, no, you're not the one you say you are. We might be tempted to ask, well, has the plan, and the plan of God failed? Has God's will been thwarted? I mean, the own Messiah has been rejected. That, that's a problem, right? The Messiah has been opposed to the extent that his salvation has not reached those he determined to save. I mean, let's not forget, we're talking about the Jewish people, Abraham's people. The Pharisees. And other towns filled with Jewish people have rejected outright the Messiah. So, so we might be tempted to ask, well, has God's plan failed? And Jesus says, no, absolutely not. In fact, Jesus says it's God's gracious will that some have rejected Christ and some have responded positively to Christ. I mean, it's a massive question, I understand. And if that's a question you want to dive deeper in, I would encourage you to spend some time with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 this afternoon or this week, because that entire chapter is dedicated to answering that question. And I think the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 is taking his cues from Jesus here that God's mercy and compassion and his showing his mercy and compassion to, to different people is dependent entirely upon God's will. The reality here is that when it comes to the sovereign will of God and to the human response to this revelation, 
There is a divine will and enabling that is essential. There's no way around that. Though deeply mysterious, the sovereignty of God is at work here. But the other thing to know from this part of Jesus' prayer is that these two groups that are mentioned, the wise and understanding and the little children, these are the two groups, and these two groups aren't foreign to the Gospels. These two categories of people aren't foreign to to Matthew or the, the overall teaching of Jesus. A great, this is what one commentator says, a great practical truth to be had in everlasting remembrance is that those from whom the gospel is hidden are generally wise in their own sight, understanding, proud, generally. And those to whom the gospel is revealed are generally humble, simple-minded, willing to learn. And and so this, this point being made is generally... Right? Those who are proud and wise and understanding, they don't respond. That was true for the Jewish leaders of the day. That's true for those today. There are many today who continue to reject the wisdom of God that's been revealed in the person and work of Christ because they know better. You know, that, that, that's just another way of religion. That's just a product of, of, a, of a, a religious tradition. That's the world. I mean, our, our family was asking Siri last night about Jesus. She has no idea. Right? Our age is ignorant. And it, we, we reject the wisdom of the gospel. I mean, this is, this is clear in the, the teaching of Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18. This is one of my favorite parables. But, but it's the Pharisee and the tax collector. These, these are the two categories of people. Jesus says, I came to call not the righteous, not the proud, not the self-sufficient, not those who are strangers to their own moral and spiritual bankruptcy. That's not who he came to call. That's not who's going to receive this message. Instead, Jesus came to call sinners, came to call the sick, the humble, the little children, those who know their desperate need for salvation. Those who humbly fall at your feet, as we just sang. You are the one we need. You're the one we love, right? There's no room for self-sufficiency and pride in that call. And so, so this isn't foreign to, to the gospel message. In fact, the beginning of the way to heaven is to feel that we are in the way to hell and to be willing to be taught. If you think you're on your way to heaven on your own, like the gospel is not going to be receptive. You're not going to receive it because you don't need it. Which is why Jesus isn't concerned, nor should we be concerned, with whether the gospel is hidden or revealed to a particular person. Instead... Jesus was concerned, as we should be concerned, with proclaiming the message, with proclaiming the revelation of salvation that has come down to us through the work and ministry of Jesus. So when I say, well, well I, wonder if, I wonder if they're going to receive it or not. No, they're, they're kind of proud. I'm not going to preach the gospel to them. I'm not going to pro- proclaim the kingdom has come in Jesus. It's not, we're not concerned with, well, I wonder if, they're hit, if it's been going to be hidden from them or revealed to them. No, we say, Jesus came. We say, Jesus died and and made a way for you to be reconciled to him. The kingdom has come through the personal work of Jesus Christ and God has made a way for you. And it's because of the gracious will of the sovereign father that we are able to freely proclaim the salvation that's available to anyone who would receive Christ. It's because of the gracious will of the father that he wills some to come. I mean, I understand there will be questions surrounding this, this dynamic work 
But we at least have to recognize in light of the reality of human nature, especially in light of what Romans 3 declares about the human nature, that, that none is righteous, that no one seeks God, that no one understands, that all have turned away and gone astray, that no one does good. Does good. That's what Paul declares about all of humanity. And in light of that, we ought to at least recognize the gracious will of the Father in willing to reveal Christ and the nature of his work to anyone. That anyone would hear the message of folly and say, that's for me, I love Jesus, I need Jesus. That is a gracious Father to save any. Let us not miss that. None of us deserve to see Jesus and have, have his true identity revealed to us. But, but the fact that some of us here have been loving Jesus for decades is evidence of the gracious will of our Heavenly Father. And it is a truly gracious will. Not only God calls people to respond, but that this sovereign Father would enable people like us to respond. Which, I mean, just a word of encouragement. This isn't in the notes, but, but maybe you have someone in your life that, that you're like, this person is never going to respond. Right? God calls who he wants. And we don't determine who he works in, who he calls. That's not, that's not our job. We proclaim Christ. I mean, many of us were unlikely stories, and God saved us. So why would we say, well, he's probably not going to save this person? We proclaim Christ and trust him to save who he wants to save according to his gracious will. God does all things according to his gracious will. We proclaim Christ. When he continues, that's just a prayer. That's just two verses there. And so he offers this, this explanation of this divided response But then he continues offering an explanation as to why he, as the man standing before them, is able to speak so authoritatively on the issue. So who's this guy talking about God's gracious will? Look at verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That is the Father. And so Jesus continues by clearly defining this relationship between him and God the Father. And so all things have been handed over to me or given to me by the Father. He's received all things. This this phrase will come up again in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission. Do you remember what Jesus says at the beginning of the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and earth has been what? Given to me, handed to me. And so certainly part of this, what Jesus means here in the all things is, is authority, But the all things, specifically I think in this context, includes the ability to reveal the truth about God's kingdom, which had broken onto the scene. So so I think, I have the authority to now reveal this, these things that I've just talked about, the Father's gracious will is to reveal. I'm telling you, I also have the will to do so. Look how he continues. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so this issue, the issue at hand is is the knowledge of Jesus, is knowing. And this knowledge, it's not just mental knowledge, it's an intimate knowledge. An awareness of the identity of Jesus and this knowledge of him as the divine son, as the Messiah. And he says, no one knows the son except the father. In other words, there's, there's only one person in the entire world that really knows the identity of Jesus, and that's God the father. So, so he's just talking about, you need to know me. Like, you need to know me, and, and you woe to you for not getting it. Well, he says no one knows it except the Father. 
But he continues, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Which is to say there's only one person in the entire world that really knows the identity of God the Father, and that's God the Son. And so it's statements like this. It's why we believe what we do about the Trinity, about the triune nature of the one God. There's three persons, three substances, three essence, three people, persons of the same essence. One God, three persons. And here we see the Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father. And this knowledge, this relationship is unique so that no one in all of creation has this type of knowledge. No one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father. I mean, this is why Jesus in verse 27 says, my Father. It's my Father. This is a bold claim. In this time and place, when Jesus says, my Father, this isn't the, even in the Lord's Prayer, it's a corporate, our Father in heaven, which would have been more acceptable because that had a precedent in the people of Israel. Here he says, my Father, my Father. This is a bold claim. Jesus is claiming a relationship to the Heavenly Father closer than anyone else had ever held. And Jesus says he knows the Father, which is to claim something impossible for any created being. No one can know God in this way except God himself. Now, even the Jews, they say, yes, God, you can't know him. We can't even speak his name, his knowledge. It's, he's infinite, eternal, unchanging. We can't know him. And Jesus says, actually, I know him. I know him. This eternally intimate relationship between God the Father and God the Son and this exclusive mutual knowledge, as Jesus is saying this, is it's having the effect of placing Jesus in a category apart from anyone else. He's claiming something that would, that would have him crucified. And that, that's, that's majestic in and of itself. But notice who else is included in this relational dynamic. Notice who else is included. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him? In light of all that Jesus just said, in light of all the Trinitarian relational dynamics that he's just laid out, this is a remarkable statement. We see here that this knowledge between the Father and Son, it is incomparable, but it's not exclusive. It means, first, Jesus says, if you want to know the Father, I'm the way to know the Father. You can't know, truly know the Father apart from me. I mean, this is Matthew's version of the I am statement in John's gospel. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. This is the equivalent of that. You don't know the Father except through me, Jesus is saying here. But second, the criteria for this revelation, did you notice? Who does the Son reveal the knowledge of the Father to? Who else besides the Son knows the Father? The Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Right? So, so this is a matter of revelation, this knowledge. And as such, it's not a natural right, but a matter of divine choice. Thus, God's sovereign initiative in revelation is applied specifically to our knowing Him. It depends on God's choice. Friends, without God revealing Himself, we can't know Him. And that is why Jesus came, so that we could know him and not be moping around in the dark. This knowledge must be revealed, and it has in the person and work of Christ. 
And Jesus says we can't know it apart from the Son choosing to reveal it. In other words, we cannot truly know God the Father apart from Jesus choosing to reveal him to us. I mean, this is why we pray that God would open eyes because God has to do it. It's dependent upon God to give this knowledge, to open our eyes and to see. And again, the amazing thing is that the Father graciously wills it and the Son chooses to reveal it. They do this. He does this. Which leads to the last point, which is a great transition because Jesus just said, I'm going to reveal myself to whom I choose. And then he turns and says, hey, I'm going to invite all of you. Anyone, come to me. Look at verse 28. This invitation, I think Jesus, the flow of these verses, what Jesus is doing in 28, 29, and 30, after just saying no one can know the Father apart from him choosing to reveal him, after Jesus thanking the Father both for hiding and revealing the truth, Jesus now turns to those around him and issues this gracious invitation. Come to me as the one who truly knows the Father, as one who has this intimate, eternal relationship with the Father, as the one who chooses to reveal the Father, Jesus says, come to me. I'm the only one who knows the Father, and because of that, I am the only one who can reveal to you the heart of the Father. And so because of who he is, because of what he's been sent to do, he can say, come to me. But, but notice the invitation. He does invite all. Come to me all. It's a non-discriminatory invitation, but then he qualifies it, doesn't he? He doesn't say, come to me all. He gives a, he gives a qualifier. All who what? All who labor and are heavy laden. That's a qualification. So, so the invitation is, come to me, those who labor, those who are weary or tired or worn out, those who are on the brink of exhaustion, right? those who maybe have reached the end of your rope. Jesus says, come to me, those who labor and are heavy laden or, or burdened or weighed down or fatigued. That's who Jesus calls. Again, do you, know, do you remember those two categories earlier? Do you know what category he's calling? The sinner, the humble, the weak, those who know they need him, the sick, the downcast. And he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And what? What does Jesus promise? I will give you rest. To the tired and overburdened one, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Now notice, Jesus doesn't invite us to come to rest, does he? He invites us to himself. He doesn't say, hey, come to rest that I'm going to offer. No, he says, come to me. It's about coming to him. Come to me, and I will, the result being, give you rest. Now as those who, who live in this world filled with causes of, of weariness and unending amounts of burdens, as, as those who labor and toil here below, we hear this call and we understand what it means at least partially, to, to labor and be heavy laden. So we think, man, that, that sounds good. And that's a right inclination. However, for Jesus to be talking to these people surrounding him, there was a specific type of burden bearing that Jesus was talking about. He, he's talking about the burden, the, the labor of the scribes and Pharisees. It was a burdensome teaching. We'll, we'll hear more about this in Matthew chapter 23. But, but Jesus says that these scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders, leaders were tying up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and laying them on people's shoulders. So that's what they were doing. They were laying them on people's shoulders. And so if you think about this context, the teachers of the law 
the scribes and Pharisees, they are the sources of knowing God. If you want to know God, you go to the temple to the scribes and Pharisees. They were the experts. They're the ones with all the answers. And these people were going to them and being burdened with burdens that they didn't have to bear, with heavy burdens. Tithe this many times a week. Make this many sacrifices. Don't do this. Do this. Do this. You want to follow God? Come. Boom, burden on your, on your shoulders. If you want to know God, this is the way. Sorry. So, so Jesus is talking to people that had been their experience. They had been, it had been communicated to them that knowing God, that being in right relationship with God was a wearisome, burden-heavy, legalistic endeavor that you could never let up on. The lives of those who, quote-unquote, knew God were lives of constant laboring and burden-bearing, at least for their followers. And it's into this context that Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, what a refreshing alternative. The burden bearing, heavy laden follower. He continues, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Follow me. Come, come to me and, and take my yoke upon you. And so, so there is, Jesus isn't saying, hey, follow me and you're not going to have a burden to bear. That's not what he's saying. However, those who, who would come to him, they're given a yoke. Now, often there's a lot of different opinions about this yoke. It's not something you, you fry in a pan, right? That's an LK, that's a yoke. But this yoke, I, I've often heard, and it's like in Paul in, in 1 Corinthians, we'll talk about being unequally yoked. And it's a burden of beast you put a yoke on to, to keep to make the burden easier. And, and so you have two animals that pull it. Well, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's talking about, that's what Paul's talking about. But here, I think Jesus is talking about a human yoke, with, which would be just something that goes over your shoulders. You, you've seen these pictures where there's like two, two buckets on either side. And they're just hanging over this, this yoke. It's a human yoke, and it just helps you bear the burden. It, it distributes the weight. You can look it up. Go, go Google human yoke. But I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. The point being that Jesus, coming to Jesus does involve a burden. I mean, he said, take up your cross and follow me. Die to self. There's a burden, but his burden, he's saying, it's not like any other burden you have ever known. It's a yoke that's easy and a burden that's like, like birds, like feathers to a bird. That's what my burden's like to you. Coming to him leads to rest. Following him was not burdensome or wearisome. And that's the case because, verse 29, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, here we get a picture of Jesus' heart. In all the gospels, this is the only place where Jesus tells us what his heart is. Did you know that? Of all the Gospels, of all things he says, this is the only place he says, this is what my heart is. And, and heart, in this sense, is, is what is true at his very core. His, his inmost being, what is he? What's he like? What's his character, nature? At the very core, what's his heart? And he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's who he is. That is who Jesus is. Meek and lowly, humble of heart. Yes, he's sovereign king. Yes, he's been given all authority in heaven and earth. Yes, he will judge the nations. And yes, he is gentle and lowly in heart. That's who he is. 
which is why coming to him and learning from him is, is different. Because of who he is, he's not a harsh master. He's not a Pharisee. Did you keep the law this week? Those who come to Jesus, having not kept the law, are welcomed. He's gentle and lowly in heart. Is your perception of Jesus, I screwed up, I better stay away until I fix myself. If that's your inclination, your initial response to Jesus, you don't get his heart. You've misunderstood who he is. He is gentle and lowly in heart. He welcomes, he receives the sinner. That's his whole purpose. That's who he is. He's not a harsh master. He's not going to place a burden too hard on you. He's not going to be angry that you're so messed up. He's not going to say, great, let me extract every ounce of use from you and leave you dry. That's not him. That's not him. Instead, he welcomes you. He receives you. He won't cast you out. He won't demean you for not having it together. He understands. And he is inviting all who labor and are heavy laden to come to him for rest. And because he's gentle and lowly in heart, you don't have to fear being rejected. He receives the sinner. He will receive you just as you are because that's who he is, friends. And it's not just any rest that he offers. Did you notice what he says? You will have rest for your souls. This is the rest that Christ provides to all who come to him. This is far greater than any temporary relief, than any vacation, than any momentary reprieve. This is the rest that begins now and ends never, and it's for your very soul. And it comes through Jesus alone. The soul that finds rest is the soul that comes to Christ. The soul that finds rest isn't the soul that doesn't follow Christ and take up his cross. It's a soul that in light of what he's found in the person work of Christ has a rest that far exceeds any earthly trial or burden. So when we come to Christ, we're still going to have trials and burdens. We're still going to have to take up our cross and deny ourselves. But it's in light of who we've come to, knowing who is sovereign over all things, that we can say, I can rest even in my toil. There's a rest to be entered into, and those who have come to Christ have already entered into it, Hebrews would say. And that's what Jesus invites us into. Come to me. And so I know, I know at least one person in this room needs some soul rest, and that's the one standing up here. And what a gracious reminder for me to be reminded this week, I need only go to Christ and I will find rest for my soul. And so I just want to, just in closing, what, what burdens are you bearing? What burdens are you bearing? You're bearing some. We all are. And so where are you going with your burdens? Are you bearing them alone? I mean, the, the, the main burden to be born is that of, of religion and acceptance with God. And ha- is God happy with me? Is he pleased with me? And, and this world is filled with ways that you can ensure that God's happy with you. And none of them will work. Because the only way for you to have rest for your soul is to come to the Son in faith. And you're accepted by God through him alone. Is that Jesus would be seen as the one who is willing to give rest to the souls of those who are poor and needy and come to him. Let me pray, and then we'll sing in response.